Before we start the show, I just have one simple question. Are you looking to grow your career in solar tech? If so, Aurora Solar is the leader in solar design and sales software with over 5 million projects designed in the platform to date. And Aurora is hiring across multiple roles, including customer success, marketing, sales, operations, and more. See open roles and apply to join Aurora. Voted one of the best places to work in 2021 at aurorasolar.com. We'll also have a link in the show notes. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. The systems that support growing, shipping, and processing food make up one-third of heat-trapping gases. This week, how can ag tech help us tackle this tangled and underserved sector? We'll look at investment activity and policy levers. Then we revisit long-duration storage. A net-zero grid will require new ways to store and discharge energy over long periods. How's it shaping up? Plus, is carbon pricing back on the table here in the U.S.? Catherine Hamilton is my co-host. Catherine, how are you? You're enveloped by a very large chair there. (laughs) I'm recording from our cabin in the Shenandoah, and I have been awaiting a sleep sofa so that people can come and stay with us here because it's so peaceful. And I kept getting messages that like, your shipment has been delayed. We're not sure when it will come. And I am 100% sure it is stuck behind the ever given in the Suez Canal. (laughs) <laughs> that is the ship that is the ship that has been stuck in the Suez Canal for I think seven or eight days. It's finally freed. Those hundreds of ships that have been waiting are now sending goods around the country. So hopefully your uh, your new furniture will be there soon. Yeah, now they're like on hyperdrive trying to get everything to everybody who was completely dependent. It's a it's a very it's a very nice chair you've got in front of you or behind you. It looks kind of like a Pee Wee Herman chair though. <laughs> very large. I feel like Lil, Lily Tomlin in her <laughs> great big chair. Catherine is the chair and the co-founder of 38 North Solutions and our guest co-host is with us in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in beautiful Harvard Square. It is Amy Dufour. She is a principal at Prime Impact Fund, a VC firm that invests in seed stage and Series A climate tech startups. Amy, hello. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Catherine. How are you both doing today? Doing excellent. Are you also, I can't see what you're sitting on. Are you sitting on a large sofa? I unfortunately am not sitting on a large sofa. I am sitting on a very small chair uh, in my bedroom, um, and I am envious of Catherine and the large, beautiful sofa (laughs) behind her. (laughs) As we tell all our guests, the best way to get high-quality audio is to be as uncomfortable as possible, (laughs) and usually the most uncomfortable position is optimal for audio recording. Uh, Welcome. How are things in Cambridge, in beautiful Harvard Square? They are great. Although, correction, I'm actually in Central Square, but close, close enough. And it's great. I'm really excited today, not only for being here on the podcast, uh, but also I'm going to get my second vaccine shot later today. So it's like a a big day of firsts. (laughs) Yay! So before we begin, tell us what Prime Impact Fund does and what you focus on. Sure. So Prime Impact Fund is an early stage VC fund. We invest in technology companies with the potential for gigaton scale climate impact. So our whole investment thesis is really um, supporting companies that are taking big swings at climate change. I'd say the innovation in our model is that all of the capital that's coming into Prime Impact Fund is what we call catalytic capital. So it's more structurally patient and flexible. And we want to use that to de-risk early stage climate technologies for follow on investors. Well, Lord knows we need a lot of patience for a lot of the early stage stage companies in in this space, particularly for sectors like agriculture, which we're going to talk about right now. So we're going to begin with a topic that Amy told us is one of her favorite things to discuss, emissions from the food system, from the agriculture system. I can imagine that makes you a bit of a downer at dinner parties when everyone is trying to think about the taste of the food rather than the climate impact, but it certainly makes you a hit with our audience. (laughs) So what do we mean when we say the food system? We're talking land use and agriculture mostly, but also processing, packaging, shipping, consumption, 
In total, they make up a third of global climate pollution, according to a study published in the journal Nature. It's the reason why Biden's team is so focused on the agriculture sector as part of its climate push. And meanwhile, the ag tech sector is pulling in a lot of money from venture investors. According to Crunchbase, $5 billion in venture capital went into startups using sensors, drones, fertilizers, synthetic biology, sequestration, and data science to make agriculture cleaner and more efficient. And the VC firm AgFunder puts the yearly funding total from all sources closer to $20 billion in ag tech. So where does an explicit climate focus fit into this activity? And are we at a moment where policy and investment trends are going to align to help reform agriculture? Catherine, first to you, just give us a sense for the agricultural sector. How is it contributing to the warming planet? Yeah, it's a super complicated sector um, with lots and lots of different sources and different processes and is really takes a systems approach to deal with. Um, I spoke with someone who's been working in the sector for a while, and she says, you know, while you mentioned those numbers globally, really 24% is agriculture itself globally, 10% is the U.S. total contribution from ag. But there are areas like the upper Midwest, Minnesota's 25%, Iowa's 30%, so it depends on what the state does is how many emissions, what their emissions profile is for agriculture. And about 50% of the ag emissions is from crops. And that's soil management, tilling, fertilizing, draining, education, you know, the health of the soil. So it's all soil management practices. Um, About 25% of the emissions are from livestock, Um, all those feeding operations, the methane emissions. And the third biggest chunk is 12% of ag emissions from manure management. Uh, so that is kind of what the profile, and then there's a whole host of other things in the, in the rest of the pie, um, but so to speak. <laughs> but there, it's a huge contribution, and the good news in all of this is that there are a ton of solutions out there. Um, we just, as I said before, need to take a systems approach to those. Yes, and we will walk through some of those solutions, including ones that Amy is specifically focused on. Uh, help us put some of those numbers into context, Amy. How big of a problem is agriculture right now and the climate issue? Agriculture is a huge problem. I mean, as Catherine mentioned, anywhere from upwards of a quarter to a third is responsible for global emissions. There's been some really um, incredible work published by Our World in Data, which are collaborative efforts between University of Oxford and a nonprofit organization called the Global Change Data Lab. And they've really done some um, sort of deeper dives into the GHG emissions per year. Because when we think about this, it's not just to be from agricultural land practices. I mean, half of the world's arable land is used for agriculture. And 70% of global freshwater withdrawals are also used for agriculture. So if we're really focused on deep decarbonization, While a lot of the efforts really focus on transportation and building, agriculture absolutely needs to be part of that equation. One of your colleagues wrote a piece outlining different investment strategies and investment activity, pointing to some numbers showing that funding to ag tech startups increased 900 percent between 2013 and 2019. Um, You know, funding across all sorts of all different sources is getting to the $20 billion a year range. And this is like anything from drones, spreading fertilizer in unique ways, to new uh, kinds of packaging, to soil management practices. I mean, a wide range of stuff. A lot of it is not climate focused either. How are we thinking about like the specific climate tech solutions amidst this activity? And is a lot of this activity kind of beneficial to the climate, even though it's not positioned as a specific climate tech play? Yeah. So a couple of technologies that we find really compelling and interesting is, you know, firstly, food waste technology, tech that can either reduce crop loss or extend shelf life. There's also been a lot of technology around the production of biochar from biomass waste and how it can be stored in soils and sort of remain stable and permanent for thousands of years. Um, Fertilizer production, zero carbon fertilizer production is also really important. Um, And then regenerative ag has really seen a new sort of wave of life in the broader sort of agriculture space and I think more broadly 
So regenerative ag really describing farming practices um, where you're rebuilding sort of soil matter and improving um, the water cycle and resulting in much higher forms of carbon drawdown. So it could be no tillage or sort of cover crops or crop rotations or compost. And then another area too is around blue tech. So that's really everything ocean related. When we think about aquaculture, a lot of the production emissions there are from fish farming. um, And that's really driven usually by the feed and the energy. So different startups are focusing on technology for feed or fish health. I feel like one of the the key parts, though, is in each of of these different sort of technology areas, there, there can be issues. So in biochar production, it's really hardware heavy. And so oftentimes it can be really hard to get to those meaningful um, proof points without super expensive um, industrial equipment. With fertilizer, um, renewable fertilizer, you really are focusing on farmer buying habits and kind of ways of working, and it really needs to have widespread acceptance. And then when you think about broader parts like ocean farming, which I find really exciting. You've got, you know, to think about the cost, you've got to think about the ocean, which is really unpredictable. You know, all of those areas are areas that are really important um, and areas that we see less activity. And then on the flip side, you know, we mentioned before, there's a lot of activity in alternative proteins and ag biotech. You know, ag biotech, you can think about Pivot Bio, which recently raised a, a pretty large round, or Indigo Ag, um, which is a sort of unicorn ag tech company. They're really working with plant microbes. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a real balance between trying to find the technologies which are really critical for deep decarbonization, but then also, you know, from my perspective, making sure that there's investment in areas where there are key gaps, uh, because we want to make sure that we are taking as many shots on goal as we can. Catherine, how are you thinking about the solutions across those different sectors? Yeah, the area that I think is particularly interesting because of our farming communities, uh, because they're at tremendous risk from climate change, right? So there are a lot of natural climate solutions that you could put into place um, to reduce emissions and sequester carbon. Um, you know, planting perennials, you know, tilling practices, hedges, grasses, so conservation, restoration, and um, land management as well. And there are people that are already doing this. And for example, Minnesota has um, 21 best management practices uh, to avoid emissions. There are a lot of other states. California is doing some work on manure management. There are a lot of folks that are focused on what can the farm communities do um, because we have to have them very engaged. And, And this is a matter of not just changing their typical practices because it will cost more. It is trying to prevent them from de- being decimated by practices that are leading to climate change. If I'm thinking about the highest impact solutions in the agriculture sector, my mind goes back to soils. We can store mind-bending amounts of carbon in soils, and that goes back to specific farming practices like regenerative agriculture. Um, it also goes back to how we subsidize monocultures. And it's a much bigger policy consideration that isn't about influencing individual farmers. It's about reforming the entire system and and also probably creating a market for allowing farmers to sequester more carbon in soils and giving them a financial incentive to do that. So the tech piece is really compelling to me, but there's also this big structural market reform piece that I know that the Biden team is considering right now. Catherine, what is some of the activity underway that can help some of this upstream systems level decisions? Yeah, sure. So from the congressional side, and remember, a lot of states are doing things too. So as I mentioned, California and Minnesota were two two states that are moving forward on this. But in Congress, there is a member of Congress, Shelley Pingree from Maine. She has been an organic farmer for 40 years. And she introduced in the last Congress and is expected to in this Congress as well, a bill 
addressing exactly these issues. And it's called the Agriculture Resilience Act. And it deals with, well, not only increasing research, improving soil health, protecting existing farmland, supporting pasture-based livestock systems, which is really important, boosting investments um, in on-farm energy initiatives, and then also reducing food waste. These are all these components we've talked about, and she takes this real systems approach. And the goal is to get 50% emission reductions by 2030 and net zero by 2040, which is a huge task, um, especially when most of these things are voluntary. But this really does require a change in practice. And it's a change in practice that um, is going to need some help to a lot of the farmers that have done the same thing for a long time, but are also experimenting with new things, but will also help farmers be more profitable and less risk prone. From the administration's perspective, um, the Biden administration definitely has, remember um, the USDA secretary is Vilsack. Uh, he has been the agriculture secretary before. That's Tom Vilsack. Tom Vilsack, uh, and so he uh, he knows how to do this. He knows where all the programs are and how to leverage them. And the USDA basically was told in the executive order in January 27th that this is key, and the USDA has 90 days to collect feedback from stakeholders and start implementing these programs, one of which has been floated uh, a carbon bank um Senator Stabenow from Michigan has floated this as well, which basically would set up a system uh, kind of like a cap and trade system or emissions reduction system for farmers. And they, they still have to kind of work out the details of that. But it seems like something that could be pretty interesting and would provide some incentives and well, a mechanism to actually um, trade credits and allow farmers to, to benefit from those. I think that it's exciting, um, particularly from the carbon um, bank perspective. You know, carbon markets more broadly has been something that, you know, I've been, been watching um, for a bit of time. And I think it's really fascinating to see how they're applying it to particular sectors. I think, you know, Indigo Ag is is really trying to to take this this model on on its head and have done some really thoughtful work around um, their whole carbon credit program and working with farmers and really quantifying and measuring um, that such that it can really enable more streamlined adoption um, across farmers and that way they can really be compensated um, for the new practices that they've been employing. And I think it's going to be really important, as you say, to, to try to track and give transparency to make sure that these changes are permanent, that you can verify them and certify them. Um, absolutely. And and slightly switching gears, you mentioned food waste, um, Catherine, and food waste is one of my favorite things to talk about um, in the broader agriculture space. Both of my parents are from Ghana, so they often used to say, don't waste your food because there's a child in Ghana that's going hungry. And I always used to say, "Ugh, like, stop telling me that. But they're, they're actually right. You know, food waste is responsible for 6% of global greenhouse gas emissions. You know, they're thrown away from producers, they're spoiled um, or spilled in supply chains, or they're wasted by consumers like us. And so when I think about food waste, actually, I think food waste technology has one of the biggest promises kind of in the broader ag tech space. And I think it's become even more important during the pandemic. So you've got some companies like Appeal and Mori who have developed um, different biological derivatives or coatings. So it's all about slowing down the metabolism of food, like ethylene production. Um, you have companies like Clean Crop Technologies. And full disclosure, uh, Prime Impact Fund has invested in Clean Crop and I sit on their board. You know, they've developed high efficiency plasma, which generates reactive gas species to degrade pathogens, toxins and pests responsible for food waste. And so you've got these these different technologies, both offensive and defensive within the food waste tech space that are that are really there to extend shelf life. Um, and also along the food safety lines. When food is wasted or when there have been particular contaminants um, that have come in, in food insecure countries, which may not necessarily, depending on who you're speaking to, be the United States, but thinking about other countries in the developing world, like people don't have any other options but to eat those contaminated foods. So it's really linked to also 
pretty terrible human health impacts. Um, and so one of the reasons I really like food waste technology is because it has this really fascinating sort of intersection of climate justice, both thinking about the developed and the developing world, and also from a greenhouse gas emissions perspective, as well as a human um, health perspective. So last question on this and what we need to see going forward to make progress in agriculture. Catherine, first on the policy and money side, I mean, it feels to me like we just need to throw insane amounts of money at this problem. Because if you consider the changes that are underway in the electricity sector, that's the result of decades of and, and hundreds of billions of dollars of tax incentives and state level programs that enabled wind and solar and and then batteries to scale. And now we're at a point where the acceleration is is happening at a, at a pretty extraordinary speed. But what do you think we need to see in terms of spending and structure of programs, particularly in the short term over the next four years? Because the Biden team is taking this very seriously. Yeah, definitely. And there are two big things to consider. One is the farm bill, which is up every five or six years. And 2023 is going to be the next farm bill for the next few years. We'll be working on what is going to be in that. And that kind of sets forward all the spending and agriculture policy for the country. But the other big thing is during the Trump administration, um, and remember during the trade wars, uh, the president gave a lot of money to farmers to try to make them whole from uh, the trade issues that were happening and they were getting hit by them. Well, there is an ability there's a mechanism to fund farm farmers for in things like that and that's how, that's what they were trying to do with this carbon bank but there are mechanisms we can use right now and to put to use within the federal government and administratively that will be able to help farmers and yes it will incentivize them um and hopefully we'll be able to do that um those, those in tandem yeah totally and that, that's a good real-world example of what just happened. Uh, the Trump administration found a way to throw tens of billions of dollars at farmers to counterbalance its its trade decisions. And so there's a lot of money sitting there that we could use in unique ways. Amy, in terms of evaluating investments and the influence of technology and changing agriculture practices, what are you keeping your eyes on? What kinds of progress do you need to see? One of the key areas of, of progress is one, you know, technological innovation. I think that's really critical, but also traction in the market. So do you have pilots? I think one of the, the different things about agriculture versus other sectors or verticals within the climate space is that you need to often have like multiple field trials in different parts of the country, across different growing seasons. And so companies that have a thoughtful plan about how to execute that, particularly because, you know, we primarily invest in much earlier um, stage companies is really important. Um, that's going to be the difference between having a, a good idea that's kind of a, a cool science project and having a large scale self-sustaining enterprise. Well, hopefully some of your companies will be able to take advantage of this government funding. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> We're going to take a quick pause here to talk about our supporter of the show, and that supporter is Aurora Solar, the leader in solar design and sales software. Aurora has over 5 million projects designed in the platform to date. You can confidently design and quote systems right from your desk. Aurora's Irradiance engine provides validated solar access values. You can generate bankable shade reports that are accepted by major rebate authorities and utilities. And Aurora's commercial suite includes design and financial analysis tools custom built for commercial and industrial projects. Say goodbye to messy spreadsheets and PowerPoints. Aurora takes all the information from your solar designs and simulations and calculates financial returns for loans, leases, PPAs, and cash payments. Seamlessly combine design and financial information into sales proposals at the click of a button. Aurora was voted one of the best places to work in 2021. And guess what? It is hiring for a bunch of open roles. You can see what those roles are at aurorasolar.com or follow the link in the show notes. Let's turn now to long duration storage. 
it is totally possible for America to rebuild a net zero grid by somewhere between 2035 and 2050. And analysis from highly reputable researchers at places like Energy Innovation, RMI, and Princeton University have shown it is technically feasible and economically desirable. But all of these analyses rely on a missing component of today's grid, long-duration storage that can be relied upon for days or weeks or entire seasons. And this can come in many different forms. Classic pumped hydro, hydrogen, new electrochemical batteries, or heat. And whatever the source, we need a lot of it. For example, one model commissioned by the California Energy Storage Alliance showed that California could need 55 gigawatts of long-duration storage by 2045 to manage so much solar. That's 150 times more than what California has installed in the last decade, and it's mostly installed lithium-ion batteries. So what would it take to support such a big deployment, and what's the money betting on? Amy, when you think about building out a net-zero grid, what role does long-duration storage need to play? play in that? So I think, first of all, let's kind of talk about what we mean by long duration storage, because for different people, it can mean different things. I think if you think around current lithium ion batteries are cost competitive for around four hours of duration, and most needs are around that, or maybe up to six hours, generally think of long duration storage of six hours or, or longer. Lithium ion batteries are only cost competitive around four hours, they're a lot more expensive after that. Plus, they create a lot of hazardous waste. While pumped hydro, um, which uses power to pump water to a raised reservoir and then sort of releases it and regenerates power when it's needed, and it's kind of one of the other dominant forces, is really location constrained due to the availability of natural resources. So these two things combined, I mean, really gives the opportunity for diesel generators or fossil fuel plants or kind of other parts of dirty power to to really fill the gap within our energy needs until we have a different solution. It's really important to think about long duration energy storage when you have a vision of the future and the kind of proliferation of so many forms of renewable power that are coming onto the grid. When we think about what would it take for us to invest in some sort of long-duration energy storage company, the key question really centers around cost. We need to think about the power and energy-related CapEx costs. There have been a lot of shots on goal. Some of them have been moving towards wind, and some of them have been misses. Um, But the key consideration is that we need to find long-duration energy storage that's cost-competitive without subsidy in the long term, And at long duration, in comparison to a lot of the approaches today, so really like pumped hydro, lithium-ion batteries, and natural gas. Catherine, you've spent so much of your career focused on the storage business, and I'm wondering how you define long-duration storage and what sectors and technologies are attractive to you right now. Yeah, I like to tell you how long I've been doing this. In the late 80s, I was working on ice storage systems with thermal energy storage rates at a utility, so... I go way back. And we also had a pumped hydro plant at that utility, the biggest, I think, in the world. Um, Yeah, so I work, just full disclosure, I work a lot with Form Energy. um, And what they have done is taken the MIT numbers of it has to be less than $20 a kilowatt hour and it has to be over 100 hours. And that's to accommodate for seasonal differences. That's what they're going for. They're going for not just the fact that wind and solar are dynamic resources, but also that there are differences in when they show up in the winter and summer. So that's what they're looking at. And so when I think of long duration, I'm thinking, as Amy says, definitely greater than four hours. But when does it become not cost effective to do a lithium ion battery that's become very cost effective? And when do you have to have something super, super cheap that can replace any fossil fuel plant out there today? There are a few interesting technologies. So companies like Form, there are a handful of companies that are experimenting with and starting to deploy new electrochemical batteries. A bunch of startups have tried and have not succeeded in compressed air. 
thermal storage, particularly hot rocks or molten salt with like concentrating solar power is can still be attractive for certain projects depending on where they're located. And everyone is talking about hydrogen production right now. How do you use hydrogen as an energy carrier, take a bunch of excess wind and solar and create hydrogen through electrolysis and use that hydrogen at different points of the day uh, so that you're not wasting all that excess ele renewable electricity? Um, Amy, there, I mean, there's a lot of excitement and hype right now. I think no one has quite figured out the hydrogen piece, although everyone's talking about it. As I mentioned, there have been a number of attempts and failures at compressed air. How are you evaluating all the activity right now? Yeah, so there, there's a lot of a lot of a lot of hype and in and some froth. places a lot of froth exactly uh look there have been a lot of failed battery companies and there have been so many different reasons i mean some of them have low efficiency there's also been a whole wave of companies that have failed due to the fouling and the corrosion of tanks um, and then you've also got the high power and energy related capex costs I think something just practically that that we look for when we're evaluating companies, a lot of the the battery companies that we've come across or energy storage companies are not fully burdening their costs. So they're they're massively sort of undercounting um, their their key costs, which will completely throw off their economics. And so a key question when we're doing this evaluation and figuring out what is actually attractive is it really comes down to cost. Like, are these costs competitive? And also the energy density, that's really important. And so companies that have been able to, to really transcend um, those key pieces are ones that will immediately start to take a second or a third look at. So then how are you actually evaluating cost, Amy? Right. So when we're looking at these different energy storage technologies, I mean, we will say, look, how does this technology compare to pumped hydro? How does it compare to natural gas? How does it compare to lithium-ion batteries at four hours, at eight hours, at 20 hours, at 100 hours, at 200 hours? And then we'll really look for key orders of, of magnitude. And something that'll be compelling um, for us will be really, you know, multiple orders of magnitude um, lower um, which will give us an indication that even if a company misses some of their key targets or, you know, they've uh, overstated or understated certain inputs, that it's it's likely not to completely blow up their economic model. Catherine, how big is this market for long duration storage in theory? I mentioned some numbers in California. It could be through 2045 that California needs to install 150 times the the long duration storage capacity as has been installed in a te the last 10 years across any storage technology. So like there's just a massive uh, change that needs to happen in the market in that state alone. What about the broader opportunity for long duration storage? How big is it? Yeah, so Guidehouse Insights said last year 400 megawatt hours of long duration storage were deployed, and that's about 3% of the market. But they're saying by 2030, it'll be 30,000 megawatt hours, which would be about 40% of the storage market. And California is saying they need about a gigawatt of long duration by 2026. That's in five years. That's, that's a lot in five years. But I think what we have to look at is what are you solving for? So what what is it that you need that you can't get right now with what the current technologies can do? Say you need, so the UK is finding they need inertia. Um, they need reactive power. Some of that you can get through, say, HVDC transmission technologies, but not all of it. You can't get all this firming and load shifting and replacement of existing plants through that. So we have to look at what are you solving for and what can long duration do to figure out what exactly that market size is and what the, is the value of that. We will have in our country and globally a lot of stranded assets. This isn't just coal plants retiring. This is coal plants that need to leapfrog building new natural gas plants and instead use other technologies like long duration storage to do exactly what a natural gas plant would do. Right. And so right now, most of the storage in the U.S. is providing ancillary services like real-time grid balancing services. And if you want to incentivize uh, storage over eight 
hours or 10 hours or 100 hours, you have to have completely different set of incentives that recognize that that capacity and that long discharge. So for example, in California, when you look at the numbers needed there, California does not have any policies that would support that kind of storage deployment. So they literally need to start from scratch. Um, What actually needs to happen? Are there any specific policy implementations that need to happen right now to kickstart this market? Yeah, so California, I do think will be setting some goals, just as they've done for storage writ large. But for example, they have been able to use storage of all types to replace peakers, and they did this in Aliso Canyon. Um, In New York, NIPA, the New York Power Authority, is talking about eliminating their oil and gas peaker plants, which is um, a little under 500 megawatts, with energy storage and that would include long duration storage. I think what we really need to look at is in our planning, in our modeling, we need to, for all utility procurements, we need to look at what is necessary, what are gonna be stranded assets going forward in five, 10, 15 years, and make sure that long duration storage is part of the solution. So we have to make sure that there are all source procurements and in all of the modeling scenarios, they include long duration storage. I mean, they're not even including distributed energy resources. So, I mean, they need to be much more holistic generally. They need to look at the demand side too, which I spent a lot of time on. But on the supply side, they have to look at all the technologies that are gonna become available and cost-effective in the next five years. And then they have to figure out how much are those worth versus how much is it gonna cost us to shut down a plant um, and retire you know, all of these workers. One of the things I really love about the kind of California announcement and a lot of the movement that's been happening there especially is when we've been looking at the long duration energy storage market, some of uh, the other VCs in the space would say there's no market, so why would you invest in it? And I think the the key point is believing and understanding that something will happen, that it's really critical for deep decarbonization and that that the market will evolve. I think that's that's part of the the point and the 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 thesis when you're trying to focus on things that may not necessarily exist, you know, today. Along those lines, you know, we, you know, full disclosure, you mentioned Catherine that you are um, an advisor or you work very closely with with Form Energy. We recently made an investment into a startup called Noon Energy uh, where I'm sitting on the board. Uh, which is a a carbon oxygen battery that's very energy dense, um, ultra low cost at at long durations. Um, so think sort of a, a hundred plus plus hours. And you know one of the things that we think is really kind of unique about uh, this approach is that they're using oxygen and carbon as active uh, materials. I feel like with long duration energy storage, there are going to need to be multiple shots on goal. And so while there are all of these different approaches, whether it's thermal or gravity based or flow batteries, um, you know, the the question becomes, how can we support all of these different companies and approaches to, you know, have the best shot of fulfilling their ultimate mission and, and goal? It's one of the nice things about California is that I feel as though that's going to just propel kind of not only more companies in this space, but hopefully more investors to understand that the market is developing and it's not something to be ignored. Sounds like a goal for our dear former co-host Jigger Shah over there at the Department of Energy to support some of these projects. And speaking of which, last year in the 2020 omnibus, the Better Energy Storage Technology Act, the BEST Act, passed and was signed into law. Uh, Collins, Heinrich, and Smith were the leads on this bill. And what this does is it provides a lot of R&D to reduce the cost and extend duration of energy storage to do at least one project, a demonstration project, to address seasonal variations. It will provide technical and planning assistance to help utilities, and maybe they'll then start building them into their IRP modeling. Um, There's a joint long duration uh, storage initiative with the DOD and DOE, and there's a recycling program for energy storage materials. So if we can get the best act that is now sitting at DOE fully funded, we could get some, some of these really gnarly problems solved. Let's end the show with a discussion about carbon pricing. If you followed 
this show for a while, you probably noticed the changes in our discussions over the last couple of years. On the policy side, we used to talk a lot about carbon taxes or carbon cap and trade, and not so much anymore because it's, of course, seen as dead on arrival in Congress. But it's also because the climate movement has shifted beyond a technocratic approach into policymaking and and into something that's more human and urgent and connected to the real world problems that intersect with climate. And that has been a very noticeable shift in um, the pressure campaigns and the messaging campaigns around this issue in the U.S. But carbon pricing, of course, is still very relevant. And we see on the voluntary side, tech companies like Amazon, Microsoft, and Stripe are paying high amounts to carbon removal startups to help them offset some of their emissions. And in Washington, the big story this week is the American Petroleum Institute endorsing a national carbon pricing policy. Now, this feels a decade and a half too late, but it's a very significant move by one of the most powerful lobbies in the country. And so a couple of questions here on carbon pricing. Will this change anything politically on the API side? And what is the case for staying focused on a carbon price? And I guess the third question is, how does this intersect with some of the activity we're seeing from these large corporates who are taking carbon pricing seriously? Catherine, let's go to the API news first, because this is the thing that just happened. What is the significance of the American Petroleum Institute's stance on carbon pricing? Okay. So in the 101st Congress, we are now at the 117th Congress, and each Congress is two years. In the 101st Congress, back when the first Bush was president, Pete Stark from California introduced the first carbon tax in Congress. So it was a long time ago. In 2005, the UK set up the first emissions trading scheme. So these have been in play for a long time. There are 46 countries and 28 subnational jurisdictions that have some kind of price on carbon, whether it's an emissions trading system, like a cap and trade, or a carbon tax, where there's an actual price on carbon. So the API does seem you know, like fast followers or followers, I should say. And remember, this isn't about saying we want X type of policy. What they do is they lay out a set of principles. And those principles include that any kind of price on carbon has to be economy wide, it has to be transparent, non duplicative, maintain US competitiveness, have no carbon leakage and integrate with global markets, which I actually think is significant. And I think that is what is pushing them is global markets. And then finally, it focuses on net emissions, which also includes offsets as part of that. So I think it's yes, it's a little bit behind where we've been, but it also shows that API and the US industry, which has been really far behind on these, is starting to catch up with the global market. And I think they're being forced to do so by their members. Okay, that was a thorough but somewhat technocratic answer to this. I guess let's go down to the to the to the, the fisticuffs politics. The reason why you can't talk about this stuff in Congress is because Grover Norquist at the Americans for Tax Reform and the Club for Growth made it impossible for Republicans to ever talk about pricing carbon, ever. So when APA steps up and says, actually, we support this, like, does is it just a press release or do, do they, does it manifest itself in politics so that it blunts the you know, the, the campaigns from people like Grover Norquist, who will just go in and try to muscle Republicans aside if they show any kind of support. Actually, I guess the question is, does it give cover to any Republicans? So I think Republicans, a lot of Republicans have been on board with a carbon tax, not a tax, I should say, like a price on carbon for a while. But what they were trying to do was replace any EPA regulation, like any kind of clean power plan with like, we won't do that if we do this. And of course, the devil's in the details. You could have like a $5 a ton price and it would be meaningless and yet it would still be a price. And so it totally depends on how you go about doing this, what, what how you're going to manifest it and what the price is going to be. So, you know, I don't think it is at, at all unreasonable to think that Republicans would be on board with this sort of concept. The issue is like, what does that actually mean? Amy, do you care about carbon taxes? Do you care about carbon pricing at all when you think about climate tech investments right now? Well, that answer has definitely changed over the years. I would say that originally, um, any company that had come to me a couple of years ago and had some sort of carbon pricing as part of their business model, I was like, no, no way. <laughs> we should really be focused on business fundamentals. And I was really skeptical because a business that's 
um, revenue stream or ways of working that was dependent on that, I felt that was missing the mark. Look, I'm the first person to say that things have changed. Um, Carbon pricing has become a much more important part of the landscape. And I think, you know, frankly, if we're going to avoid the sort of two degrees of warming on the planet, carbon pricing can play a really important role. You mentioned corporates. I think that they can play a catalytic role in supporting particularly, you know, early and mid-stage companies to create carbon solutions that have large scale climate impact. And I think that's exactly what a Microsoft and a Stripe and a Shopify and and others are doing. Amy, talk about what some of these corporates are up to in the kinds of tech that they are supporting through these investments. Three of these corporates, so Stripe, Microsoft and Shopify, have all been supporting a company called Charm Industrial uh, which, full disclosure, we we have invested in. What the Charm Industrial Team is doing is they're converting biomass into bio-oil and injecting it very deeply underground. So bio-oil is generally produced through a process called fast pyrolysis. So you can take biomass, whether it's wood or rice, straw or almond shells. It's heated up um, without any oxygen present. And then it produces a liquid, which is called bio-oil. And so... This bio oil, which can be injected underground, is really just one application for Charm Industrial. The team's also looking at converting it into green hydrogen um, and also syngas for sort of broader industrial applications in ammonia and steel production. And the first customer that they, or one of the first customers that they um, received was was Stripe. I mean, when Stripe had their large announcement, which was, look, we're going to pledge at least a million dollars to pay at any price the direct removal of CO2 from the atmosphere and sequester it um, for long-term storage, Charm was able to take advantage of that. And they're getting paid $600 per ton as part of the broader corporate's negative emissions efforts. I think what's also really interesting is that Charm has really gotten three of the the biggies in carbon removal RFPs. So not only Stripe, but Microsoft and and Shopify. And within a year of creating the company, you know, they're on their way to, you know, contract revenue worth multi kind of millions of dollars, which is which is incredible feat and also demonstrates the movement and the evolution of this broader sort of marketplace. And this where this is where the the politics really do matter for me because I think having some kind of carbon price that spans not just across a quarter of the country, but the entire country um, and escalates per year can have a direct impact on some of these companies that are doing interesting things with carbon management and sequestration. So that to me feels like the, the highest impact piece when we imagine a world with some kind of price on carbon. All right, so let's round out the show now. Free electron time. Amy, what is your free electron? Okay, so my free electron is, I think it's grounded in the fact that I work at the intersection of climate tech, venture capital, and also venture philanthropy. And our sort of broader nonprofit prime coalition is is led by a really incredible leader. Um, But the vast majority of nonprofits are funding within the broader climate space Um, white leaders. And so the Donor of Color Network's new Climate Funders Justice Pledge is really challenging the nation's largest climate funders to change the way that they fund organizations. I mean, according to them, the the top philanthropies are only giving around 1% to BIPOC-led environmental justice groups. And so, you know, it's one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is I don't think you can kind of divorce climate change from issues of equity and justice. And I think the climate philanthropy community is is not immune from that. So that is my free electron, the Donor of Colors Network. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, we brought Danelle Baird on the show a couple of weeks ago, uh, a found, the founder of Block Power, who he had a real scathing assessment of the lack of dollars that are going to um, founders of color and people who are people of color who are managing organizations. And so this really is a, a topic that is, is top of mind for a lot of folks. So thanks for sharing that one. Catherine, what's your free electron? Yeah, so I'm going to quote something that will directly link to what Amy said. 
eliminate racial and gender inequities in research and development in science, technology, engineering, and math. Discrimination leads to less innovation. One study found that innovation in the U.S. will quadruple if women, people of color, and children from low-income families invented at the rate of groups who are not held back by discrimination and structural barriers. That is in the Biden administration's American Jobs Plan that was announced this morning. Y'all, it is Infrastructure Day. And he announced a $2 trillion plan to do everything from transportation to farms and rural communities, broadband, workforce development, housing, schools, colleges, electric grid, federal buildings. The accelerator that I've been working on is in there. Manufacturing. Um, all of these lay out his policy priorities for his infrastructure bill. So I'm super excited about that, super excited to see what Congress does with it. They could take it and uh, take all of those really great goals that he's laid out and even give them more money than the $2 trillion. But he's definitely set a benchmark that no other president has. Should we unpack it in a future show? Yeah, I think we will be talking about this for a while because we'll have a few months to work on it. So it, it may be like trying to get the ever given out of the Suez Canal for a little while. But yeah, we should definitely talk about it. Well, I've chuckled at your mentions of the the uh, ship stuck in the Suez Canal, but that brings me to my free electron, which was as I monitored that story and hundreds of ships got backed up and caused major disruptions in global commerce, I thought back to a story from 2018 and 2019 um, wh when the Panama Canal was having really extreme problems because of um, water supply and, and drought. And so they had to, for a couple of years, restrict shipping uh, along the Panama Canal um, that, that ca also caused disruptions. And so there... Well, we can kind of chuckle about what happened in the Suez Canal. I mean, it was a very serious issue. Um, but ships can run aground when there's severe drought. And it's just a taste of what's potentially to come in global shipping. Um, we should prepare for more examples like this. Especially when you need a sofa. <laughs> Amy Dufour, thank you so much. What a fun, fun time. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Amy Dufour is a principal at the Prime Impact Fund. Catherine Hamilton is my regular co-host. She's the chair and co-founder of 38 North Solutions. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you. This was great fun. We are a production of Postscript Audio in partnership with Wood McKenzie. Dalvin Abouage helped produce the show. And you can find us on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts. Hit us up on social media. Send us a message if you want to suggest other topics or guests. And, of course, give us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Super helpful to us. We will catch you next time. I am Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. Talk to you soon. 